Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and in continuing with our discussion on human flourishing, I want to address the topic of voting. And we have a guest on, Christopher Fryman, to talk to us about whether or not libertarians or whether or not people should vote. Uh, So Chris is an associate professor of philosophy at the College of William & Mary. His research interests include democratic theory, distributive justice, and immigration. And he actually has a forthcoming book coming out that is on the topic of voting. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So uh, Libertarian Christian Institute, our theme this year is human flourishing. And we talk a lot about, or we will talk, it's early in the year right now, uh, we are going to talk a lot about what Christians and what libertarians can do to make the world flourish. And of course, we believe that freedom is sort of a baseline. You got to have that in order to see genuine human flourishing. But there's also, you know, sorts of things that we can do to uh, advance the cause of flourishing. And that would be things like entrepreneurship, actively helping the poor, starting a business that invents something, you know, as with technological improvements, things like that. One of the things that people assume naturally that are ways in which we can flourish together is that we should vote. Is that wrongheaded or is that, you know, can voting be a legitimate form of advocating for human flourishing? I would say that all of the things that you listed earlier, so entrepreneurship, private charity, and so on, are a better use of your time than voting. So if you want to make the world a better place, I would say leave voting behind, leave political engagement behind, uh, focus your efforts on your work, your family, private altruism, and that'll do more for human flourishing than political engagement in, in most cases. So I could imagine cases where that's not true, where maybe political engagement is very worthwhile. But I think for most of us, it's not worth your time uh, showing up at the polls on election day to cast a vote. Yeah, I've often said that I will do more good by playing a game with my kids than, you know, endangering people by driving on the roads (laughs) to get to the polls. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Do more good for the world. That's right. By playing with your kids, for sure. Yeah. Well, and you uh, sent me, uh, I think, the introduction to your forthcoming book for me to kind of get a sense of where you come from on this topic. And one of the things you started with was your conversation with your students about harvesting organs. So the blunt way to ask this question is, is voting more important than harvesting organs? <laughs> no, no, but it, it is interesting uh, how, how frequently my students seem to be more concerned with voting abstention than the possibility of organ harvesting. So when I teach say, my ethics class or a political philosophy class, I inevitably give students the following sort of scenario. It's just one of these old chestnuts from moral theory and political philosophy where you say, look, uh, suppose that there is a, you know, there are two people who are dying. They each have a different organ that's failing. But if they were able to find a match and they got the organ transplants, they would both survive. And so would it be justified to, say, sneak up on an innocent person who just happens to be in the hospital for a routine procedure, kill that person, harvest their organs, 
and redistribute them to the two patients. So in essence, you're trading one life for two. And now most students, they don't say that you should do that. They say, nah, you probably can't kill the one person to save the two, but they entertain the argument. They say, you know what, I, I don't buy it, but I can see why people would buy it. I can see why this is a, a position with some justification. But when I bring up arguments against voting, they're completely scandalized. This is like the craziest idea that they've ever heard. And I've always found that to be interesting, that they're willing to entertain that murder could be ethical. So, for example, if you're murdering for the greater good, like in the organ harvesting case, that's, you know, all right, they think that that might be moral. Although, you know, or, or at least they're willing to entertain yeah, the idea right. that it could be moral. But they're just not willing to entertain the idea that it could be ethical to not vote. And I just think that's a really telling reaction. It tells us a lot about how much weight our society places on voting as a civic duty. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is just to say, look, there's not really a good argument for thinking that it's a moral duty. And in a lot of, t in a lot of cases, it's actually going to be a moral duty not to vote because voting and doing the research that you need to do to cast a good vote is going to soak up a lot of time and effort from other activities that actually do a better job of helping people improve their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think that your students are probably thinking, oh, well, I'm here to entertain these crazy scenarios, and therefore I'll entertain why, you know, we should harvest organs. From that single individual example, I don't want to make that a blanket statement there, uh, <laughs> why, why that scenario is worth entertaining. But like, you know, voting, that's just a settled fact. Like it's, I'm not right. here to, I'm not here to question that. That, that. That's right. It's like if I, yeah, told them that uh, the earth was flat or something like that. Well, who's going to entertain that? I mean, yeah, that's just yeah. clearly, clearly crazy. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and the thing is, you can actually demonstrate pretty strongly to an individual that their abstention from voting I mean, okay, I, I realize I'm about to say as long as they're not saying home doing nothing. But then again, I realize that that's just a judgment call on what they choose to do with their time. So, you know, whatever, you know, staying home from voting and doing something al to the alternative is probably better for them and for the world. And you, you can make a pretty strong case about that to people. But I think what happens sometimes is the like, it's like that whole scaling problem. It's like, well, if everybody stayed home, then what? Or, you know, something along those lines. That's right. And so that that is in it sort of in brief my my argument to, against voting, uh, which is suppose that uh, you spend the time that you would have spent voting and researching your vote on I don't know uh, some sort of private philanthropy or suppose you work a couple of hours overtime at your job and you donate that to an effective charity that's going to do more good for the world than your vote. But like you said, one of the standard replies or the standard worry about that line of reasoning is you say, well, what if everybody did that? Now, one reason I'm not compelled by the what if everybody did that argument is that there really is no danger that my refusal to vote on election day will cause lots and lots of people to stop voting. So the, the argument really can't be that my not voting will cause lots of people to stop voting. It's got to be more like, well, the right standard to use to judge the morality of your actions is something like, if it would be really bad if everybody did what I'm proposing, then that means it's wrong for you as an individual to do it, even if it's not actually likely that everybody will do the bad thing. Um, and, and the reason I'm not compelled by that sort of the sort of hypothetical question, which is like, there's no real danger that everybody's going to stop, but it would be bad if they did. 
is it just has it, it has too many counterexamples. So there are plenty of things that would be horrible if everybody stopped doing them, uh, but it's perfectly permissible for you to not do them. So, for example, it would be horrible uh, for the world if everybody became philosophy professors. Why? Well, you know who's uh, you know who's uh, farming food, who's cleaning teeth. Uh, you know, who's fixing toilets, all these sorts of things. Um, that would be really bad if everybody uh, stopped farming and took up philosophy. But that doesn't mean it's immoral for a particular person to not farm food and become a philosopher. And why is it perfectly permissible not to farm? Well, because we have plenty of people who are farming and like, you know, we're, th there's no real worry that one particular person at the margin choosing to become a philosopher rather than a farmer will cause us to run out of food. And so you say the actual consequences of not farming are fine. Now, again, maybe if somehow you not becoming a farmer led to lots of people not being farmers, that could be a problem. But again, there's no danger that lots of people will stop voting if I stop voting. And so it seems to me like the rational thing to do is you say, well, what's the expected impact of my action as a particular individual on the margin? And given that we live in a world where tons and tons of people are voting, uh, my vote's not going to make a difference. And so I can do more good for the world by staying you know, home or working overtime on election day and doing something more valuable with my time. Yeah, so the only way that that argument would actually have sway is if you're a highly influential, like maybe like if there's, I'm just trying to think of a really famous person who everybody just waits to you know, do what they instruct them to do, you know, that would be the only moral hazard that that would possibly cause. Right. And I, so I talk about this in the book. I say, I, I, like the, I like it when students raise this objection to me because it's, it's kind of flattering. So I, they're like, well, like, you know, you must be so influential, you'll cause lots of people not to vote. And, but, it, but I know that they don't think that. And here's how I know that they don't really think I'm that influential. I say to them, well, OK, um, I've just given you an argument for not voting. Did I persuade you? Will you no longer vote? And they go, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm still going to vote. And so they go, OK, well. Clearly, I'm not influential enough to cause, you know, millions of people to stop voting. But right. So maybe if I were, a, uh, you know, the sort of person who influenced millions and millions of people, I can't even influence my, my own students. I can't get my own students to turn in their papers on time, let alone like, you know, uh, radically reform their moral lives. So, so I'm not too worried about that. And there are possibly people you've actually convinced on that level that, that you're right, that if they don't show up, it's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. Well, like, and, you, and they're still doing it. <laughs> It, well, and, and the thing is, too, I say, OK, you know, maybe I influence some people, you know, let's be super generous to me. Maybe I influence like one person a year. That even seems high. But suppose I influence one, yeah. one person a year. That, that one person still can do more good for the world, dropping out of politics and pursuing private altruism instead. So if I influence millions of people, it, maybe it would be a different story. But if I'm influencing, you know, a handful of people over my lifetime, much better for them to spend their time on private philanthropy than politics. Yeah. Well, and those are levers that, of change that they can actually affect in greater ways. I mean, we're all equal in our vote to an extent. I mean, clearly there's the electoral college issue to talk about in terms of weight, but like you and I are one vote, period. That's it. Like, it's not like you might be better at farming and therefore if you abstain from farming as opposed to me, you know, you're doing the world a lesser good or something along those lines. Right. And, and, and sort of a related uh, response to the what if everybody did that objection comes from uh, Lauren Lamasky and Jeff Brennan. And they just say, look, uh, suppose millions of people do stop voting. 
then the value of an individual goes up and it might actually make sense for a person to, to, to start voting. So if somebody said, what if everybody did that? What if everybody stopped voting? Then I'm happy to say, all right, well, well then I'll vote uh, because then my vote will carry a, a lot of weight because uh, I'd be the only one I'd be the only one voting. That's a really um, good point. Yeah, so the, the, there is a kind of self-correcting mechanism there, where if tons yeah. of people start dropping out, then it becomes rational for more people to start voting. So, do you, okay, so that brings a, a number of questions that I want to kind of dig in a little bit here, not not as an offensive, but just like one of the things that I have said to people when they ask me, why aren't you voting? Because I, I do vote in like presidential elections. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I voted in the midterm election for the first time this past year. And, oh, wow. Okay. Um, th- now, the reason for that had to do with I'm literally driving on a road where the polls are like, right there. It took me five minutes out of my day. I was on my way home. It took me like it it will take me less effort to explain to people why I didn't vote than for me to pull over and vote. <laughs> that's really what it was down to me. And that's actually what I told people why I voted. <laughs> and they okay. look at uh, me. They looked at me puzzled. But here's the thing. So let's say I have decided, you know what, I just don't, I'm not well informed enough to vote because I have actually said that in the past, right? And so I'm not informed enough to vote. And I say to this person who asked me why I didn't vote and is a little bit perturbed by it, well, do you really want me voting? I didn't study any of the issues. I don't know what I think about X, Y, and Z. Do you really want somebody uninformed going to the polls? And they might say, well, yeah, like you, you got to vote. Like, it's just kind of like an insistent thing. And I'm like, but I'm not informed. Yeah, I could. And not only that for half these people, I'm against you. Why do you want me to go to the polls? I don't, I would not vote the way you'd vote. So like by me not going, you should be happy. And they, but thankfully, I guess to some extent, you know, their commitment to the democratic process is like, no, but you need to have your voice or whatever. So, so that brings up like, well, okay. So if a lot of people are simply not voting, which is actually true, the majority uh, are not voting. Is it possible that the current amount of voting, give or take 10 million people, is actually the right amount, given the scenario that you just said? It's like, well, if people stop voting, then the, then the right people will go. Because I can imagine people, you know, who are in key pockets of the country being mobilized to vote in a particular election because they do feel like it's in their best interest to go out and vote this time. Yeah. So it is interesting. I've had the exact same experience that you're describing where people say, well, it's really important that you vote, even if you'll vote against the candidate that I prefer. So it's this sort of in and of itself, it's this thing that's really important for people to do. And I confess, I'm just not quite sure why we should think this, why we would think it's, you know, a, a general duty that every single person has, as opposed to something more like you know, farming or practicing medicine or practicing dentistry, where you say, look, it's not that everybody has to do this. You know, it's good that we have, you know, sufficiently many people who do this, who are competent at doing this. Like, that's, that sounds right. Uh, but it doesn't have to be the sort of thing that everybody does. And that doesn't mean that there aren't cases where it might be a good thing to do. Like I said, if, you know, maybe uh, you live in a swing state and you're a particularly rational or well-informed voter, then I'm not going to object too strenuously if, if you vote. But that's very different from saying that, that everyone has to vote. Mm-hmm. And, and it is strange because we, you know, there are some moral duties that we think are general. So we say everybody is under an obligation not to murder. That seems pretty reasonable. But there are other sorts of obligations that we, we just don't think are general. So we might think that um, people who are particularly well-situated to become firefighters, let's say, 
maybe should be volunteer firefighters. They can do a lot of, of good for the world that way. Um, but we don't think that every single adult American has to be a volunteer firefighter. And in fact, it would be inefficient if everybody did that. We or can if everybody should be a volunteer anything. Like everybody should volunteer. Right. right. That, that's right. And and so it is this this interesting case where many, many people just think everybody has to do it even if you're not particularly well-informed, even if there's lots of, uh, of evidence that you're biased, you just have to go and do it. And, and I agree that that has always kind of struck me as strange. Yeah, it's almost as if it's like a liturgy for people, like for like democratic fundamentalists. It's like, well, we have to do it because it's just good for us to do it. Yeah. And that, that's yeah, right. I don't buy it, but, you know. That, that's right. That's what you have to do to be to be a good citizen. And so this is a reply that I've gotten. I say, look, this is just one of your duties as a good citizen. You have to go to the polls. And I, I think it's interesting that it's the act of going to the polls that sort of gets all the attention rather than the behind the scenes work, which is actually what's really important for casting a good vote. So my view is part of the reason why you probably shouldn't vote even if you live in a swing state, is because you probably haven't done the research, you probably haven't done the debiasing that you would need to do to have rational confidence that you're voting for the right candidate. But people seem not so concerned with that work. The The concern is more you got to go to the polls and you got to pull the lever. Yeah, well, and then there's the calculation that's sort of exterior to the political process itself that we get all focused on, and that is things like you know, am I likely to hit somebody with a, my car while going to the polls? Am I likely to, I mean, or for, for leftists, am I endangering the planet by driving a car to the polls? Now, I realize some people can walk. Um, but like more traffic on the roads creates more, more, more hazard for people who are commuting and so forth. So like you have to calculate that in. I'm, I'm sure you can think of other reasons why <laughs> you're endangering other people while going to the polls. That, that, that's right. So depending on the state that you live in, you know, right, the odds of killing somebody on the on the road are greater than the odds of, of swaying the election. So a case I give in the book. So, so one of the things that I really stress is the opportunity cost of voting. So when when, you know, lay people, but also academics, sometimes when they talk about the opportunity cost of voting, they say, look, what's the big deal? At most, it's an hour uh, you got to register, you got to drive, you got to wait in line, maybe, and you got to drive home. Like, what's the big deal? It's just an hour. Like, I, I think that's right, but that's kind of like saying, uh, you know, taking the SAT only takes, I don't know what it is, three hours or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, to, to take the SAT to actually sit down only takes three hours, but to do well on the SAT takes a lot of time uh, for preparation. And I think the same is true of voting. So again, doing research, trying to actually be unbiased about how one votes, that takes a lot of time and effort. And one implication of that is that the opportunity cost of voting well becomes pretty high. You're not just talking about an hour at that point. You're talking about, at a minimum, dozens of hours. Then you say, okay, if I were to work overtime for dozens of hours and then donate those proceeds to an effective charity, say the, the Against Malaria Foundation, you could literally save somebody's life. And so you say, well, now is it worth it to try to cast a good vote? So if you know with a reasonable amount of certainty that your vote's not going to change anything, you know that the opportunity cost of that vote is a human life, then it starts to look pretty reasonable that you shouldn't vote and you should work and you know try to fund private charities uh, instead. So why not do both? Because, I mean, it's just Tuesday night. Why not Wednesday night do the overtime? 
Right. So my, my argument there is to press the opportunity cost point again. So if you're saying, well, it's a, so like in your case, well, so, so you might also be an exception too, because uh, you're probably uh, much better informed than the average citizen, such that when you drive past the polls, you could just hop out, cast a vote, and it'll be pretty well informed. But if you take somebody who's, say, like the typical American citizen, and there's all sorts of social scientific evidence about how the typical American citizen is just radically uninformed about politics. And when they do acquire information about politics, they tend to process it in a very biased way. They tend not to use it to form true beliefs. And so you say, if you're that citizen, you think, you know what? I don't really know that much about politics, and I can't really trust myself to process political information in an unbiased way. What should I do? One thing I could do is spend a decent amount of time learning about politics, learning about economics, trying to undergo some kind of evidence-based uh, debiasing regimen. That's Again, that's going to take up a lot of time. Uh, or you could say, look, I'm just going to forget about politics entirely and devote 100% of my time to something like private philanthropy. So you could do both. Uh, but the problem is every hour devoted to becoming a good voter is an hour that's not devoted to becoming a private philanthropist. And if you think that each hour of private philanthropy or private work done to, to fund philanthropic endeavors is more valuable than an hour devoted to politics, I say, why not just do private philanthropy for the entirety of your, I don't know, altruistic life, yeah, for lack yeah. of a better term? Okay, so then what about the area issue of specialization? So clearly you and I are here talking because we know something about even the process of voting, let alone, you know, most of the issues. And I would say I'm pretty well informed. Uh, when I tell people I'm not well informed about certain issues, I actually have to pick something relatively like off the side because I'm actually fairly informed. And so maybe you and I are wasting a vote because we're like more informed, like, shouldn't we be the ones going while also advocating that people should judge for themselves whether or not they should go? Does that make sense? Maybe well, that's like right. a side, I'm sort of joking here, but like, maybe that's a libertarian strategy is like, get everyone not to vote and all the libertarians that are informed, go and vote. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's an interesting strategy. Although, you know, the interesting thing there is, so this, this reminds me of uh, an objection that I sometimes get from my students when I talk to them about this, they'll say, look, you don't have to vote, but you, you shouldn't publicly tell people, you, sh you shouldn't publicize the idea that you shouldn't vote because then you're going to cause people not to, not to vote. And I say, well, like, are, are, you know, if you really are worried that I'm going to have this influence, would you be okay with me just like lying and saying, well, I, I do vote even though I never do. And some of them say like, yeah, like it's totally fine for you to say, oh, yeah, I go vote because like I'm informed and this is something that everybody should do. So I, I think that would be like an interesting electoral strategy, but it would still, I think, be rational for an individual on the margin to publicize that strategy, but then also stay home on election day. So say like it's really, really important for all the informed libertarians to go out and vote. And perhaps that includes me. But then when election day rolls around, I actually just spend an hour working overtime instead of going to the polls. Because again, on the margin as an individual, uh, that's what's going to do the most good for the world. So as a matter of sort of ideology, libertarians are pretty contrarian. But on the issue of voting, we, we kind of are when it comes to like the ethos of voting. But when it comes to actual practice, many libertarians who stay home are doing what the majority does. And I think that's a point that is very 
often miss is that staying home is a form of voting and that it actually, like you've been saying here, and and I kind of want to lead into more discussion on this side of it. It's like, okay, why shouldn't I feel guilty about voting? And second, why is that actually morally better? Not just like, oh, well, yeah, don't worry about it. Like it's not, you're not doing any harm by staying home, but like it's actually morally better in probably most cases. Right. Good. So I'll give you two cases. So the first is, so, you know, why shouldn't you feel guilty? The short answer is that in typical cases, your vote will not do any good. It's not going to make a difference. Now, I say typical cases because there might be atypical cases. So there's this debate over how influential your vote might be if you live in a swing state. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about that case. But in typical cases, so, you know, I don't know, if somebody lives in California, for example, the vote is just not going to make a difference. And it seems strange to me to think that people might have a duty to do something that makes no difference. So I give the following kind of case in the book. Suppose NASA informs us that a meteor is about to hit our state, for example. And you think to yourself, well, here's one thing I could do in response to this news. I could go to a wishing well, toss in a penny, and wish for the meteor to not hit us. It doesn't seem like you would have a duty to cast that wish that the asteroid or the meteor doesn't hit anyone. And the reason is because casting that penny in the wishing well is not actually going to change anything. Like, I don't think anybody would say, no, you have a moral duty to cast that penny in the wishing well. Uh, You should feel guilty if you don't do it. And I think the reason you shouldn't feel guilty for not doing it is because it won't do any good. In the same way that, you know, voting, like I wish that my favorite candidate would become president, is not actually going to affect whether or not that particular person becomes president. So that's the short answer to why you shouldn't feel guilty. As to why it's wrong, I think it goes back to this opportunity cost point. So you say you only have so much time, you only have so many resources to devote to philanthropic endeavors. And I think generally speaking, it's morally wrong to forego helping somebody in severe need for the sake of something that's not nearly as beneficial, such as voting. So, so here's another case. Here's a thought experiment. Suppose you have a bottle of water. It's your bottle. You bought it. Uh, it's your property, and you can drink it if you like. But while you're walking with this bottle of water, you come across uh, two people. One person asks you for the bottle of water and you say, well, I was planning on drinking it myself. What do you need it for? And they say, well, my hair's not looking so good today. So I'd like to use your water to slick back my hair to make it look better. You say, hmm, okay. And you turn to the second person and you say, why do you want the bottle of water? And they say, well, I'm dying of thirst. Uh, and if you give me the water, I'll be saved. Um, it'll save my life. It seems to me in that context, If you decide to give up your water for an altruistic purpose, it would be morally wrong to give it to the person who's going to use the water to slick back their hair instead of the person who's going to use that water to save their life. Why? Because the the need of the person who's dying of thirst is just much, much greater. You can do much, much more good for the world by giving it to the person who's dying of thirst than the person who wants it to use their hair. Like, in fact, like I, I think you would, you would feel guilty uh, or you should feel guilty if you gave it to, that, to the hair person rather than the thirst person. And so bringing this back to voting, every hour that you devote towards politics or researching politics and casting a vote 
is an hour that's not spent funding effective charities that, that literally save lives. So you might spend lots of time trying to vote well, uh, which produces an expected value of probably zero. Uh, and that's time that you could have spent earning lots and lots of money to give to the Against Malaria Foundation, which will save kids' lives. It'll prevent them from dying of malaria. And so just as it would be wrong to allocate your water to the person with bad hair, as opposed to the person who's dying of thirst, I think it's wrong to allocate your, for lack of a better term, altruistic time or philanthropic time towards something that has virtually no expected benefit instead of something that could literally save a child's life. I think the examples that you use, I mean, we're talking about, you know, solving malaria, helping a child in various ways. Like, we obviously shouldn't ignore the fact that being productive is a way of improving the world as well. I, I realize that you don't actually <laughs> disagree with that point. But, you know, I think when we think about altruism and like donating our time to voting, I think that what you're saying is that the the ways in which we can be charitable with what we have, whether it's time or money, is more put to good use not voting and choosing to do something else. Are there ways to, like, do we have to? Well, I'll ask it to you this way. I would feel guilty if I've been convinced that donating money to a charity or spending time donating my time to, like, the local soup kitchen is better spent during the day that I would otherwise voted. But if I don't do that and I just went home instead, I would probably feel kind of guilty. But should I feel guilty even in that case? Other than my yeah, like he, fact that I didn't stick with the commitment that I made. Right. So if you just so right, you're not going to the soup kitchen, you're just watching TV instead of voting. Yeah, not even having family time with my kids. I'm like, I'm totally couch potatoing it <laughs> for that time. Let's just assume the worst about the person's, you know, just like, eh, whatever. Right. So I would say you should feel no more guilty in that case than you should feel guilty about not throwing the penny in the wishing well to try to stop the asteroid. So I, I, I can't shake the intuition that there's no moral duty to engage in actions that have no meaningful chance of making the world a better place. And so if conditions are such that your vote has no meaningful chance of making the world a better place, then you shouldn't feel guilty about not doing it in the same way. Yeah. There, you know, there are lots of things like, you know, you, you blow out your birthday uh, candle and you're like, oh, I could have wished for the end of world hunger, but I didn't do it. Uh, you really shouldn't feel guilty about that because it's not like blowing out the candle actually would have solved the problem of world hunger. And and I don't even think it, it's this sort of, so sometimes when I make this argument, people say, well, look, does this mean that on election day in particular, you have to spend your time at the soup kitchen or working overtime? I don't think it has to be quite like that. I think it's easier just to to sort of automate your altruism. So for example, you might just say, look, what I'll do is I'll just work a you know a little bit of overtime each month, and I'll save that up. And at the end of the year, I donate all of my savings to the Against Malaria Foundation. So it's not like a one-for-one -one trade off where you say every single second that I could be at the polls or I could be watching CNN is time that I have to spend on work or private philanthropy. I think it makes more sense just to kind of go on autopilot. And you say, look, insofar as I'm working for altruistic purposes, let it be for effective causes. And so I'll disengage from politics entirely. Like I'm not going to watch the debates. I'm not going to worry about researching my vote. And whenever I do try to make the world a better place, it's going to involve something like earning and donating. Did you just assume that watching CNN was paramount to uh, becoming informed about it? <laughs> well, so, so here's the thing. Yeah. So, so this is, this, so 
this is another issue too. When people say, you know, I'm a really well-informed voter. Typically what they mean is like, yeah, like, you know, they'll watch the debates or something like that. Right. Right. And, and I actually, and I think the bigger, the bigger issue, the bigger obstacle to becoming a good voter is this idea of bias, which I alluded to earlier. So you can, you can watch political news 24 seven if you want, but that's not going to help you become a good voter if you just dismiss all of the information that runs counter to your view and only accept information that affirms your view. So there's this huge literature now on what's called politically motivated reasoning. And, and it's basically the phenomenon of, of what I just described. So we get political information, but we don't use it to try to correct our false beliefs. We use it to sort of affirm that our partisan commitments are correct. So like we, we don't really update our beliefs and change them in response to counter evidence. When we get counter evidence to our views, uh, we just kind of figure out a way to dismiss it. And when we get evidence for our views, we figure out a way to affirm it. But this is not, uh, this is not a very good strategy for trying to arrive at, at true political beliefs. Like what you would want is to genuinely engage with counter evidence and if it turns out you're wrong, you admit you're wrong and you, you change your view. But very rarely do people do this. And I think this is really why we should be self-skeptical about many of our political beliefs. It needn't be that you have no information. You might actually have a ton of information. But if you're just using that information to pat yourself on the back and tell yourself that you're right, then you're not ever, you can't really rationally trust your beliefs because you would never correct them in the event that they're wrong. But what if you already have the right beliefs? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so this is, so this is, yeah, this is good. This is a response that I get sometimes is they say, look, um, yeah, like I, I understand what you're describing, like in the abstract could be a problem, but like, I know I'm right. Uh, like the, the, <laughs> I was just you know, being you know, sarcastic. Like, that's great. No, no, I, no, that's right. So I think, right. But so I have people who sincerely make this argument though, sincerely, they'll be like, I like, I know how to vote. Like, it's just obvious. And, and so I have a couple of responses to that. So one is just, I think that the burden of proof is on the person who thinks they're exempt from these sorts of biases. Because when you look at the literature, so people who like have more education are no less prone to these sorts of biases. Intelligence actually seems to make you more prone to some of these biases. And so when people say, yeah, no, I know there's all this like general psychological evidence that we're biased, but I'm an exception. I think having that thought should give you pause. Like you would need very strong reason to think that you're an exception. And the other thing too is that there's really interesting evidence out there about uh, we, we sort of selectively vilify the other side as a way to justify our ongoing commitment to our own side. So you'll you see this reflected in, in political discourse sometimes, where people say like, "Yeah, like my party's not perfect. They can be spineless at times." but I've got to stand by him because the other side is evil. And the idea there is that, well, if the other party is evil, then that makes it rational for you to continue on with your own side because they're the lesser of two evils. You might say, well, is that like rational? Is it rational to think the other side is evil? I don't think so. Like it certainly could be the case that there are evil proponents of the views held by the other side. I think that's a, that's a real possibility. But I think to, to say, well, uh, 50% of the country is just evil. And so it's obviously true that I should vote against them, I think is, is a bit too quick, especially when we're talking about policy issues that are, that are like really hard. When we're talking about things like immigration 
and abortion, distributive justice, taxes, capital punishment, all of these things, just really hard problems. And to think that we can easily figure out who has the right bundle of policies is, is I think, just um, is wrong. Yeah. Well, and it goes beyond that. I mean, you have to calculate, you know, the likelihood that the opposing party is going to be elected in opposition to this president. Like, there's just so many, like, variables that it's like, yeah, let's just <laughs> stay home and play games with my kids. Yeah. That, no, that, that's right, too. So I say, um, I mean, suppose you think, as, as I do, uh, that open borders are a really good policy. That still leaves open the question of the best way to pursue them, pursue open borders in, in the real world of policy. So you say, like, you know, is like advocating for like incremental change going to be more effective than advocating for outright open borders, given that a lot of people are resistant to the idea of open borders, like does a more moderate strategy work? Are there ways in which, so like, I think, for example, you can see this sometimes. So I think people on the left have actually become more sympathetic to open borders during the Trump presidency. Like now there are these calls for like open immigration that you weren't really hearing before Trump. Uh, and I think that's partly like a partisan backlash to Trump. I think that's a good that's a good thing that people are more open to this idea. But it's just very, very hard to predict how the real world of politics is, is going to play out. Even if you have perfect views about what the best policies are, there's still this huge question of how to pursue them in the real world. So I, I want to end with something that we've kind of like touched on a little bit throughout this conversation, and that is the idea of signaling. And what does it signal to, like, for instance, my kids um, go to school and they're, you know, we don't homeschool them or anything like that. So they are around people who are sort of dedicated to this idea of voting, right? And so, you know, they, around election time, they come home with, you know, (laughs) my son comes home with like, back in the the first, uh, the most recent election with Trump versus Hillary, it was like, hell, they're both, they both uh, want World War III to happen. And like, they, this is their like little kid minds of like, they want World War III. Like, I don't technically think Trump or Hillary wanted, but anyway, that's kind of the way they think about it. So, but it becomes a family conversation. And I realize that, of course, we can talk about whether or not voting is a good idea and so forth. They, I, I actually took them with me to uh, the polls that time and they knew who I voted for. We talked about it or whatever, but like, I almost kind of think that that might be the last object lesson I ever do with them. But there is this whole idea generally of like signaling to other people what you do. And there's the virtue signaling aspect of it, which is like, hey, look at me. I'm a good voter. Look at my little pin. And then there's the whole like, you know, you're demonstrating for children what it's like to live in the world among people who are not, you know, not part of your family. So where does I mean, there is there's just a lot to think about with that. I mean, how do you, how do you answer people who think, Oh, well, it's just a good thing to do. Like I got my answered it that way, but. Well, so one thing I would say is you're missing out on one of the benefits of not voting, which is, you know, you can publicly announce. So this is what I do. You publicly announce that you're not voting. And then you get this like smug sense of moral superiority when all your friends vote. Like that's, (laughs) that for me is like the prime benefit of not voting. Um, but, but, but more seriously, yeah, I, I think so, so just on the, the signaling point generally, um, so, so, right. So maybe you say like, it's, uh, I don't know, like good etiquette or, or something like that to do to vote. Um, although I don't think then that would rise to the level of a moral obligation. So for example, um, you know, people, 
I don't think anybody thinks that you would have a moral obligation to put political bumper stickers on your car, right. uh, even though that does send a certain signal. So I think if, if the whole of your obligation to vote is the signal, uh, then that's going to give you a pretty, pretty weak obligation. More generally, and, th- and this is what I, I say in the book too, is, and I become, I, I, I'm very interested in the whole opportunity cost point. This is a recurring theme of the book. I, I give this scenario. I say, imagine that you have somebody who's driving along and they notice that there is uh, a child by the side of the road. And so they pull over and they start talking to this child uh, and they say, what's going on? And the child goes, well, like, I'm actually, um, you know, I, I don't have any money for food. I'm very, very hungry. And I was wondering uh, if you could find it in your heart to buy me a hot meal. And the driver thinks to themselves and says, well, you know, here's the thing. I, I would like, I'd be happy to drive you somewhere and put down $10 for a hot meal to feed you. Uh, but the predicament is I was actually on my way to a store to buy a t-shirt that says feed hungry children, because it was very important to me to send this signal uh, to feed hungry children. Now we think it would be perverse if that driver said, look, I'm not going to give you the $10 to actually feed a hungry child because I'm going to use those $10 to send the signal that I care about feeding hungry children. Like it's a weird thing to say, I'm going to send the signal that I care about X at the expense of actually improving X. But I think that's oftentimes what happens when we're engaged in politics. So you have people who say like, look, I really care about food insecurity, domestic food insecurity, people going hungry. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to vote for the candidate who uh, I think is best on the issue of of, uh, food insecurity. It, Turns out that the time and resources you invested in supporting that candidate, which again are not going to result in any unfed kid actually getting fed, are time and resources that you could have spent at the food bank or or working to to donate to the food bank and so on to actually feed hungry kids. And so I think if you're worried about feeding hungry kids, uh, the thing to do is try to feed hungry kids. Uh, not send the signal that you care about feeding hungry kids. And then just as like a, a, as a bonus, as a, like icing on the cake, I think actually uh, feeding the hungry kid also sends the signal that you care about feeding hungry children. So it'd be very weird if you, uh, you know, stop and you see the kid who needs the hot meal and you buy him the hot meal and you go back and you tell one of your friends what happened and they go, oh, so you did feed this hungry kid. But did you send the signal that you cared about child hunger? You would say, well, yeah, like the action is the signal. Feeding the hungry kid is precisely what signals that I care. And I think this is kind of how we should think about our our moral life. Uh, Don't worry so much about the signal, like do the right thing, do the thing that, that makes the world a better place. And that in and of itself shows that you care more so than a vote. Now, I don't know if this is, you know, depending on the age of your kids, I don't know if this is a conversation to have with them, but this would be my answer to, to readers who are, who are wondering about the moral power of the signal. Yeah. Well, I, I, my kids are, they're, they're under, they're not teens yet. So eventually I will be able to have this conversation with them. So that that's good. Um, you're, you're getting me prepared for them to do, to have these conversations. Just buy them each a copy uh, of my book. Can't can't we share? <laughs> no, no. One okay, each. one, one each. child, one, one each. per child, one per yeah. child. Uh, so, daycare. Uh, right. Do <laughs> is there anything that you could be compelled that that would compel you to vote, uh, whether locally, nationally, you know, regionally, whatever? In in your like circumstances of life, would you be like, all right, under these circumstances, 
I think I'd go and vote this time. That's a great question. So I think a few conditions would have to be met. So I think that it w- my odds of casting a decisive vote, so the chance of my vote actually making a difference would have to be sufficiently high. And I think there's, that there are some states where that, that might actually be the case. And I think I would have to have really strong reasons for thinking that one candidate is far and away better than the other. So I think it's, you know, it can, so, so sometimes philosophers argue for voting by saying, look, just because there's a small chance of making a difference doesn't make it irrational to take that chance. So one of the examples from the literature is, you know, maybe you work at a nuclear plant or something like that. And you think, oh, you know what, did, you know, did I check this certain thing before I clocked out? Uh, if I didn't, there's like a one in 10 million chance there's going to be a meltdown. Well, a meltdown is disastrous enough. You might say, if ah, there's a one in a 10 million chance that my checking my station or whatever can prevent it, it, it might be worth doing. And I think there might be conditions where voting is kind of like that. The, the big problem, though, is that, and here again, I'm borrowing from uh, Lauren Lamasky and Jeff Brennan. They say the, the problem is that politicians don't typically come out and say, I'm going to do everything that my opponent will do, except I will cause a nuclear meltdown. So like we know a nuclear meltdown is very bad. We know that that is worse than no meltdown. The problem is, I think, in most electoral circumstances, uh, we just can't be super confident that our side is the right one. And if we're not confident, that means that there's a real risk that will actually do significant harm. So in these cases where you live in a swing state and you say, well, my odds of uh, making or breaking the election are not so small that it's meaningless. But if you, it turns out in those cases, if you vote for the wrong person, you might actually end up doing a lot of harm. And that's something that would give me pause. So, so that being said, if, if two conditions are met, where you say the odds of me uh, making a difference are high enough, and I can have rational sort of unbiased confidence uh, that one candidate is better than the other, uh, then you could probably get me to vote. So what is the name of your book and when can our listeners, uh, I believe it's still not out yet, uh, when can our listeners buy it? So the name of the book is Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics, and it should be out in May 2020. And uh, I believe it will be surprisingly affordable for an academic book. I think it'll be like $20, $25, which is incredible. Yes, that is. There's a handful of books that I've wanted to buy in the last two years that have been just like, I just shake my head. I'm like, I, uh, I got a <laughs> opportunity costs. <laughs> That's that's right. It's like saving for a college education almost. (laughs) Well, I mean, to some extent, I mean, I have actually acquired some of these books uh, when they're on sale or whatever. And I'm like, ah, okay, this was probably worth the original price, but I just didn't know it yet. So maybe there's a plug for those for those (laughs) for those options. So uh, that's a good point. I'm looking forward to your book and and, uh, I hope our listeners will all pick up a copy for every single one of their children. And (laughs) (laughs) thanks for being with us, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. 
The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.